Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome, and thanks for joining us. I just spoke with Alper Yalchinkaya about his really interesting new book, Learned Patriots, Debating Science, State, and Society in the 19th Century Ottoman Empire. This came out with Chicago in 2015. Now, you should read this book. Um, I'll just say that straight away. It's a book that really, really interestingly contributes to various different kinds of literature. So um, it contributes to history of science in the 19th century. It contributes to the history of the Ottoman Empire. And it contributes, I think, really, really importantly to how we understand and how we think historically and sociologically about the connections, the entanglements, um, really the kind of mutually imbricated histories of science and religion. Um, and it really kind of helps to disaggregate um, the ways that the histories of science and religion um, tend to be bound up in our assumption that there's a binary, right, of science and religion. And, and the book really kind of breaks that open. It really interestingly speaks also to um, institutional histories of the 19th century, the way we understand the connections between language and translation in science. Um, and also it, I think, importantly um, speaks to and helps us speak about the figure of the man of science. And here it's definitely a man, the figure of the virtuous individual, the figure of um, the, the man of the state, um, really issues of identity and individual and community identity and the ways that those um, issues of identity and kinds of identity were bound up in and were, were shaped by and also helped shape the history of science and ideas of what science was, had been, and could be in the 19th century. So it's a really carefully structured and carefully organized book. It's a very, very clearly written and clearly argued book. And it's a book that um, I think really should be a must read if you are at all interested in the 19th century, modernity, um, global discussions of science, language, etc., etc. It was really, really um, fun to talk with Alper. And you'll hear there's a little bit of a break about five minutes in where we were dealing with some technical issues. So he was super Super good-natured about um, dealing with those sort of technical auditory issues. So thank you, Alper, for your patience and your good humor about that. And that kind of clears up um, about five minutes in. Um, so yeah, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy. Um, and here you go. I'm here today to talk with Alper Yalchinkaya about his really awesome new book, Learned Patriots. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Alper, and thanks not only for writing a book that I learned a lot from and found really, really inspiring, but also for making the time to talk with me today about it. Welcome. Uh, thanks, Carla. Thanks for having me. So, Albert, let's start by talking about how you came to the general field in which this is situated. What brought you to the sociology of science and to a, a kind of historically informed um, approach to the sociology of science in general? Um, yeah, um, I think as a sociologist, uh, one of the concepts that always intrigued me was the concept of uh, borders and boundaries. I'm really interested in how social groups create, you know, construct and you know, maintain boundaries um, between themselves and other groups. And I, uh, as a person who studied uh, science, I uh, actually went to engineering school before studying sociology. I've always, always been interested in science, but this was the aspect of science that also intrigued me, how scientific knowledge 
is used uh, to create boundaries uh, between groups of people. Uh, and then when I went to study uh, science studies, I went to a science studies program, interdisciplinary program. So I took not only courses in the sociology of science, but also in the history of science. I uh, started to feel like uh, the thing that interested me most was um, the construction of the category science in uh, Turkey, in Turkish and in Turkish culture. And to understand how it happened, I wanted to look at the 19th century Ottoman case. Uh, and again, in that um, research, my primary goal was to understand how Ottomans themselves uh, defined science and how those definitions were related to social boundaries. Um, but of course, you know, once I started to do the research, you know, the question or the uh, project itself, you know, started to change a little bit uh, because I felt like, you know, the people that I was reading were not really talking about the thing that I was interested in um, as much as other things that they themselves were interested in. Um, that's like a major disappointment, of course. But <laughs> but um, I decided to ask a different question. Actually, that became a much better question to ask anyway. A simple question of, you know, what exactly were they talking about when they talked about science? So what did it mean to um, Ottoman elites in the 19th century to talk about science? So I think, you know, I, I was definitely interested in the 20th century or the 21st century Turkish case, but the more I um, thought about the contemporary case, the more I realized that it had to do a lot with the 19th century developments. So reading about those discussions um, was great for me uh, also to be able to understand what's happening today. Of course, you know, those links that you don't want to uh, emphasize them too much or exaggerate the uh, continuities, but still, I think, you know, my interest in science social boundaries and the contemporary debates in Turkey brought me to the history of science. Um, and again, my interest in the uh, boundary construction and the hierarchies related to these boundaries um, was the sociological aspect of it. Thank you so much. Actually, um, Alper, I'm just going to pause this really quickly. Hi, Alper. Thanks so much. Sorry for the um, for the change there. So this actually started out um, as a dissertation. So can you talk a little bit about the transition from dissertation to book? Were there any kind of major transformations in how the book was um, or how the project was shaped or in how you were thinking about uh, the major arguments or contributions of the book? Sure. I think um, the project was a little bit, or I was lucky with this project in that I got advice um, at the beginning um, that I should think of this as a book project even from the beginning of the dissertation. So I wrote the dissertation, of course, like a dissertation, but I was always thinking about you know how to turn it into a book at the end. Um, so when I uh, sent the proposal to Chicago and then, you know, once the review process started, um, of course, in a certain important changes did happen. Uh, I think one of the important changes is, especially following the uh, recommendations I received after the review process, I added more examples from other uh, other societies. Of course, the uh, book still is um, on the Ottoman case entirely, but still there are now examples from uh, examples varying, like various examples, say, from Britain, from India, from Iran. Uh, that I think you know strengthened the comparative um, side of the argument. Additionally, I made some changes to clarify uh, the main arguments that I am making and also um, 
kind of to highlight the patterns that uh, repeat themselves or the uh, major transformations that happen. And in this uh, set of revisions, I also wanted to make it even clearer that it's very difficult to categorize these people. It's very difficult to uh, categorize their arguments as, say, you know, pro modernity, pro-tradition, or, you know, religious, or religion versus science, uh, that this is not very easy is, I think, clear from the book, but still I wanted to make it uh, more apparent that uh, this is another important argument that I'm making. Um, I think, you know, another thing that I did is that I tried to provide the reader with some hints about how this book could be used to understand the contemporary situation in Turkey. Of course, that's not my main goal. I don't think I have an answer to those kinds of questions necessarily, but still I think uh, the 19th century case can give us some insights uh, about how to interpret what's happening in Turkey today. Great. Thank you so much. Now, the book focuses on Turkish-speaking uh, Turkish Muslim Ottomans who were involved in discourse and debate in Istanbul in the 19th century. And we learn from the very beginning of the book that the men were engaged in debates over science. But as the book is going to, I think, very compellingly argue, their conversations were not so much about the nature of science itself than they were about the characteristics of a figure we might variously call a man of science and he's going to recur in different ways throughout the book, and about his relationship to Ottoman identity and identities. So the book poses a major question at the very beginning. What were the Ottomans talking about when they talked about science? And as we're going to learn um, at the very end of the book, what they were talking about was people. Um, and the chapters of the book are actually going to develop that and show us the ways that that grows and changes over the course of the 19th century. So the mm -hmm. first chapter looks at what you call the cultural transformation of the Ottoman Empire from the late 18th through the early 19th centuries. Now, in this period, there are efforts to establish institutions that are placing a greater and greater emphasis on science in their curricula. And in this context, you talk about and introduce the emergence of a new learned class. These were students in new Ottoman schools, men who had studied in Europe, and also new diplomats. And these, um, this new class, right, this new learned class is struggling to redefine what knowledge is and what ignorance is in the context of Ottoman Muslim society at the time. Okay, so this brings us out into um, kind of what's going on in this first chapter. Now, early in the 19th century, European science in particular began to be portrayed as what you call new knowledge. And this ownership over this new knowledge is being grasped by members of this new learned class that I just described. So here I'm going to hit the ball right back to you. Um, so can you talk about this? Um, in the context of this new learned class that's emerging, um, how does European science become new knowledge and what's important that distinguishes that from some of the alternatives at the time? Sure. I think, you know, the keyword really is new here. And as I discussed in the first chapter, and as the historians of Ottoman Empire know, this um, late 18th, early 19th century is known as the, you know, like um, the Sultan's attempt to create what he called the new order. So it's not simply the new knowledge, but everything new. There is this, you know, emphasis on novelty. Um, but then, of course, you know, for the characters uh, in my book, the important Part of it is, of course, the new knowledge that they are acquiring. So these are uh, people, like you said, you know, who went to um, or who do go to school in uh, the Ottoman Empire, the new um, schools with new curricula, or people who studied in Europe 
primarily also people who uh, went to Europe as diplomats. One of the interesting things that they do is, um, again, related to the you know big sociological question here, they try to connect this new knowledge into, or they try to define it as a way to distinguish themselves or as a way to present themselves as different from the rest of society, but not simply different. These are the people who now know how things work in the contemporary world. So it becomes a, an argument much bigger than you know uh, something about possession of knowledge. It is an argument about a claim to you know, power. Um, these are the people who say, we know how things work. As a result, we should be in charge. Um, and similarly, in this discussion, um, the rest of the society uh, will also be defined or redefined this time as the superstitious or the ignorant classes. And I think one of the other adjectives that we come across a lot is also lazy. Um, mm. So already in the like, you know, very early, like in the 19th century, we see this association between the acquisition of scientific knowledge and hard work. So a person who learns these new types of knowledge is also a person who works hard. And in a state or in a, in a situation like the Ottoman Empire is in at the uh, beginning of the 19th century, well, these are the people who are needed, not the lazy, not the superstitious, but the people who know things and also are willing to work hard. Uh, another thing that I should also add to this, though, um, is, again, this very early identification um, with the state. Mm. So these new learned classes are people um, that they argue the state should rely on, but they're also the people that rely on the state. Um, so it's the authority of the sultan, it's the uh, schools that the new sultan you know, opened that gives them, or that they hope will give them the authority that they need, because the knowledge that they possess or they claim to possess is not necessarily prestigious yet. The prestige or the, if you will, credibility of what they know, they think uh, is based on the fact that they are supported by the state. So in a way, already at the beginning, there is this association between new knowledge and the new state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is actually something that um, really nicely is developed in the second chapter as well. So mm-hmm. um, you talk in the second chapter about the emergence of a thread that will continue to follow throughout the book. And this is the idea of science as a kind of route to patriotism, specifically in the context of this identification of um, science with the state and uh, of learning science as a way to show one's duty and respect for the sultan specifically. Now, this is happening in Chapter 2 in the context of your taking us into the period following the Tanzimat Decree of 1839, right? Tanzimat meaning reorganization. So yes. what's happening in that context that's importantly different from what was happening in the chapter before or it, and with the class of bureaucrats that we were meeting before? Well, yeah, the first group that we met in chapter one was an extremely small and relatively powerless group. In the second chapter, with the official beginning of the reorganization era, this class is going to become both. Uh, bigger in terms of numbers, but also much, much, much more powerful. Uh, the reforms of the Tanzimat era are primarily about, I mean, not primarily, but you know, uh, also about um, creating this new bureaucratic class that will have a lot more power than the uh, bureaucrats of the past. And also, you know, they will be people who are now able to acquire um some wealth. They rely on reliable. Uh, they rely on um, good 
salaries, unlike the um, bureaucrats of the past. And these are also people who now have additional um, access to uh, European knowledge. These are people now who work at the permanent embassies in Europe. So it's not like a small group of people who start to think of themselves as the new elite, but now a, a class that is increasingly self-confident and self-aware. Um, and I think, again, that also is the period, or this also is the period in which this emphasis on science as a route to patriotism uh, really emerges. That's actually like where the title of the book comes from, because this is such a commonly like repeated you know, argument. With scientific knowledge, one becomes aware of what a government does or how things uh, work in the you know, world of international politics, how agriculture works, how uh, the economy works. So once you acquire this kind of knowledge, you will be a good citizen. And perhaps as a result, or perhaps hopefully for these bureaucrats, you will also not revolt against the people who are in charge. So learning uh, these new types of knowledge is increasingly presented as a way to create a good, reliable, and uh, obedient populace. But again, you know, this is now coming from a much more self-confident class. Uh, I, I think like uh, this is something that I mentioned in the book. I can just briefly also uh, mention it here that this class also is very popular among European politicians. Um, I provide some examples of it in the book. Um, there are many writings on how these new Turkish bureaucrats don't look Turkish, how they are not Orientals, and how they are such scholarly, like um, uh, accomplished gentlemen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is not necessarily something that any person in the Ottoman Empire would necessarily become aware of, but still this, in, uh, this perception of the new Ottoman elite as uh, truly Europeanized kind of person is going to definitely uh, influence the way these people are perceived in the Ottoman Empire by other Muslims. Great. Thank you so much. And one of the really interesting things um, that's coming up also early in the book, and I just want to mark this for listeners who might be particularly interested in these aspects of history and sociology, but might not otherwise be aware that this is happening, is there's a really, from the very beginning, there's some really interesting um, attention that you're giving to language and translation. Um, mm-hmm. So in the first chapter, you know, just to kind of mention this, um, you talk about the ways that the new knowledge of this new learned class is associated with European languages, especially French. Um, So there's a lot of attention given toward that. And in the second chapter, many of um, this sort of new class of bureaucrats that you've been talking about are associated with the Translation Bureau. Um, So there's a really interesting kind of thread here. Yes, and uh, as I also show, like it is really important. Of course, we're talking about, of course, the era of colonialism. It is very important to uh, the so-called great powers to kind of become the you know, intellectual uh, mentors of the Ottoman Empire, so to speak. This is not something that is just, you know, observed in these um, developments, but it is something that's actually, like, uttered by many people. Um, so we see in the book, you know, some French Orientalists or politicians who say that it's a great thing for France to become this intellectual leader of the Ottoman Empire because it will be useful in the future for French interests. Uh, and it's really true that, you know, for this class, French is the language to speak. Uh, as one of the examples that I also use in the book shows, you know, like they speak or they write in French occasionally. Um, themselves. And, you know, they read the books, they read uh, many of them, you know, in 
in French. So it becomes really uh, an interesting association also, uh, but between scientific knowledge and French. Um, French language, not just French language, but French culture in general. And again, that will also uh, be part of the criticism that they will receive in the following chapters. That's right. And we're going to see this association with um, science and virtue and knowledge and language play out in really interesting ways later on in the book as well, when we start to see attentiveness and really interesting kinds of attention to the use of Arabic, the use of Turkish, um, and other yeah. ways that, you know, it, it's just, I think, really, really interesting. So in chapter two, um, you talk about the ways that this new class of bureaucrats talked about science, um, talked about science as a kind of opposite of ignorance. Um, and that's a the meanings of knowledge and ignorance and the ways that those meanings change. Um, this is also a theme that gets traced through this early stage of the book. And we see ultimately at the end of this chapter that from the beginning, debates about science were really debates about social order and about here the characteristics of men and virtuous men specifically. So as we move in, into the rest of the book, we move to a chapter, chapter three, that focuses in on the 1860s. Now, this was a really important decade, among um, other things, because it saw both the first attempt to establish the Ottoman university and the founding of the first successful periodical in Ottoman Turkish. This is the Journal of Sciences. And as you show in this chapter following these two developments really helps us see how the official discourse established in the previous period that we've just been talking about was really consolidated in this one. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the Journal of Sciences. This was a publication of the Ottoman Society of Science. And again here, uh, you know, we see the importance of language and of Turkish in particular to what was happening. Now the chapter pays special attention to rhetorical strategies in articles published in this Journal of sciences that really show how scientific knowledge is associated with moral virtue. So can you talk about that? What are some of the most important ways that this is happening um, in your experience um, reading the journal um, in, insofar as it's informing the arguments you're making here? So the articles in the Journal of Sciences are all very interesting, uh, but the ones that I chose, you know, to discuss in the uh, book are the ones that are more like the programmatic like, statements um, by the editor of the journal, um, Munich Pasha. One of them is quite interesting, again, in that it ostensibly talks about um, knowledge versus ignorance. But again, one of the most typical you know, rhetorical strategies that we observe not only in this article, but in many, is that an article will start talking about how important it is to possess knowledge, knowledge in the abstract. But then when the examples start to appear, all the examples will be about the new types of knowledge that are produced by the new sciences. So knowledgeability is definitely being uh, defined as knowing the new or at least become being aware of the new sciences and having some knowledge of what they do. Um, there is very little, if any, um, emphasis on the soul, uh, the like the traditional um, knowledge uh, producing mechanisms. Of course, the religious sciences, etc. They are very rarely mentioned in these uh, articles on ignorance and knowledge. Um, so we see this association between knowledge. And science. Of course, another thing that we see here is the uh, has to do with the word in itself. The word in, which 
is of course a very, very important word in Islamic uh, culture. It means knowledge, but it also means the knowledge, you know, knowledge possessed by God. It also meant, you know, uh, perhaps in contemporary terms, it can be translated as science in some ways. But when this word is used commonly to talk about science or like only about the contemporary uh, European sciences, some associations between this word and you know, virtue that are part of the traditional you know, Islamic approach to knowledge suddenly become associated with the new sciences. So a person who is a holder, a, a person who has in you know, this Islamic idea of knowledge would be associated with um, or would be perhaps implied to be a virtuous person. But now with the use of this word, you can say that a person who studies the new sciences, say like geology or chemistry, is also a man of in, like the you know early Islamic scholars. As a result, this person also is a virtuous person. Once again, you know, virtue in this case means you know, patriotic, um, obedient to state authority, and also you know, hardworking. But generally, a person who can distinguish between the um, good and the bad, or you know, virtue and vice. A person who has this kind of like moral uh, standing. Another thing that we see in these texts is, um, I think we can talk about that a little bit here too, the idea that the new sciences, the new types of knowledge are presented as useful knowledge. Um, this is the type of knowledge that is useful in that it makes its uh, possessor a virtuous person, but also this is knowledge that has lots of you know worldly this worldly uses. And again, here's another rhetorical strategy because the concept of useful knowledge was also part of the Islamic tradition. But in that, cons- in that case, in that context, it meant knowledge useful for salvation. The new texts borrow that term, useful knowledge, but they transform it into a concept about you know, worldly, practical uses. So once again, there seems to be a continuity, yet at the same time, there's such an important uh, transformation in the way the concept is uh, used. So I think lots of things are happening in these, you know, two, three-page articles that talk about science and uh, or knowledge and ignorance in this uh, Journal of Sciences in the uh, 1860s. Why is it important um, that Turkish and the Turkish language is being used? So what's important in terms of the politics of language um, for us to understand in order to understand that aspect of this medium, on this press medium, in this particular journal, and the work that it's doing in the context of the larger history here? Well, uh, the people who are writing these, of course, people who are people who speak Turkish. But there is another important transformation that um, we see in this period and even earlier. The idea is that the new types of knowledge should be public; they should be accessible. Um, and these types of argument or these types of you know, knowledge can be understood by the people only if they are written in the language of the people. Now. Well, what is the language of the people? Uh, because, you know, in the Ottoman case, um, the bureaucracy and also in you know, Ottoman literature uh, used a version of Turkish that was heavily um, influenced by Arabic and Persian. Uh, the Ottoman elite language was very difficult for, uh, you know, commoner, if you will, to understand. Now, when it comes to talking about science and teaching science, this very important, useful knowledge, well, it is commonly argued that it will only be useful, it will only be understood if it is written in the language of the people. So as a result, there's there's a renewed emphasis 
on Turkish, even though, again, these are not people who are like, these are not nationalists. But at the same time, they have to deal with the question of, you know, how are these texts going to be read? How is the you know, Journal of Science going to sell? There's also that, you know, very practical dimension of it, too. So while writing on the sciences, they also contribute to this perhaps unintended association between Turkish and science or new knowledge, while Arabic suddenly comes to be seen as the language of the old or the old sciences or the sciences that are not as useful or that are not as needed. So I think, again, even though they are not nationalists, they unintentionally create this kind of um, dichotomy, if you will. Thank you. So as we move from here into chapter four, I think there's a really nice movement from exactly what you were just talking about to another way of thinking about and talking about not just what was happening in this context, but also potentially the larger stakes of understanding this for how we understand the history and historical of socio- historical sociology of science more generally. So this is a context in chapter four where you're bringing us into something called the young Ottoman movement um, and mm-hmm. the impact of the young Ottoman movement to the kinds of converse or on the kinds of conversations that we've been having. So um, can you talk about that? What do we and what do listeners need to know about the young Ottoman movement to understand the framework for the kinds of transformations that are happening in terms of discussions about science um, at this point in the story? Of course, this is a very important moment in Ottoman intellectual and political history. But you know, briefly put, these are bureaucrats who did get the education that would qualify them as, like again, members of the new elite, yet they did not necessarily get the promotions they expected. They did not necessarily benefit from this new system. So they organize and they call uh, for reform, a more inclusive government. And in as part of this movement, they also start to portray the uh, high-ranking bureaucrats, these new elites, as people who are alienated, who have learned so much about Europe, but they have only become you know, imitators of Europe. So they try to represent themselves as the true representatives of the people. They did get the new kind of education, yet at the same time, they were not you know, um, alienated like the top bureaucrats. So this approach uh, had its uh, influence on the way they talked about science as well. They started to argue that, the young Ottomans started to argue that science had basically um, only been repre- had only been represented in the Ottoman Empire by these alienated people who did not really appreciate the uh, traditions or the um, beliefs of their own people. So one of the uh, two, I think, major contributions they make are, uh, the first one would be, they emphasize the Muslims' contributions science or how science should be seen as not necessarily that new. Um, The idea is that if you emphasize the novelty of the new sciences, you are kind of suggesting that Muslims have not been able to contribute to them at all. Maybe that also suggests that they are not able to contribute to them. It is exactly the perhaps the colonialist argument. So the young Ottomans argue that there should be much more emphasis on earlier Islamic scholars' contributions to science, which will show to the people that Islam actually is a religion that supports science. And there is no reason 
for people to uh, kind of emulate the Europeans, if they become true Muslims, they will be able to contribute to science anyway. Of course, you know, this is a major contribution to the debate on what Islam itself is, but that's another story. Uh, another interesting thing that they contribute, of course, is that they also challenge, at least to some extent, the definitions of science that had been you know, created by the uh, people that we have already talked about. That's to say the identification of science with knowledge per se. These uh, young Ottomans will say that Islamic sciences that have been neglected are equally important, but again, the alienated bureaucrats have uh, neglected them. So they will, when they talk about science, they will also start to include uh, the more traditional Islamic sciences like, say, exegesis or uh, Islamic law or uh, the study of the deeds of the prophet. So they try to expand, they try to um, change the definition of science that had been created. Great. And you talk in this context um, about also um, a way that um, understanding what's happening here kind of helps us more broadly speaking, perhaps move away from a relatively simplistic notion that many of us may bring as readers to um, the way we understand the history of science, and that is the framework of religion versus science, right? So what the case here, I think, is really helping to um, undo and upend and transform this very traditional dyad of religion versus science, you know, on one hand or on the other hand, and really show um, the ways in which um, what's happening here is actually much more interesting and much more complicated and perhaps provides a model for how we look and how we might look anew at other contexts um, outside of, you know, the framework of religion versus science and instead to look in a, in a, I think, much more plural way at what's happening. So do you want to speak at all to that, sort of how, um, you know, this fits within that larger, perhaps methodological point about religion and science in, in history? It's true. I think you know something that could be you know elaborated on maybe in another writing is that you know these people like the young Ottomans are perhaps challenging this um, new idea of science by saying that you know science could be thought of in many different ways and you know this is if it's about you know knowledge production there have been many different ways of doing it and you know in Islamic societies there already are ways of uh, producing knowledge that are not necessarily different than um, the new sciences. But of course, at the same time, again, perhaps unwittingly, they are really dealing with this um, growing separation. Um, these are people perhaps that do not necessarily believe in it, but the terms of the debate uh, that is taking place in Europe is definitely influencing them. Um, yes, the religion-science conflict, of course, is a very simple, simplistic notion. And even if that is not necessarily helpful for the historian, this really is something that um, our our characters here are struggling with or are, are trying to fight against or are trying to uh, understand and deal with. It, it does happen gradually, unfortunately, if, if they would probably say, unfortunately, they did kind of lose this battle and religion and science have become separate things entirely. Um, but perhaps their own efforts to say that Islam contributed so much to science, these efforts themselves contributed to this uh, separation. In a way, you know, they were aware of the changes and what they were trying to do was ultimately defining a new Islam or creating a new idea of Islam that would be 
harmonious with the new sciences. So again, I think, you know, unwittingly, I think they did contribute to this um, separation between religion and science. Great. Now you talk also, um, you know, and briefly, I'll just ask you to um, just introduce it here. You talk also here about a figure um, that becomes a popular <laughs> stereotype, right? That's used to yes. criticize Western elites. And this is the figure of the FOP. Now, yeah. I, this is important, I think, even uh, just to mention and talk a little bit about because the kind of um, stereotypical figure is going to transform from a FOP to something else later on in the book. And so to, I think, appreciate the fact of that transformation, we need to know where we're starting, right? So so what's the FOP and, and what's he doing in here? Right. I think that's exactly one of the things that you discover when you ask, you know, what are the Ottomans talking about when they talk about science? And if you look at what they were writing in the 1860s and 70s, well, they're talking about the FOP, um, perhaps more than anything. What is the FOP? Again, this character uh, that kind of is based on, uh, according to the young Ottomans, the attitudes of the new bureaucrats. Well, a person who just, um, you know, fell in love with European ways, but accepted everything European at a very, like, a shallow level. Um, a person who tries to look like a European, talk like a European, again, especially in French, uh, consume European goods um, with a new kind of, you know, um, set of tastes. I think that's a very important aspect of it. These new tastes that don't really even, um, that they don't really even understand, but they just imitate the Europeans. So the FOP becomes a character that is ridiculed over and over again in journal articles, um, novels, plays. And it's important for our purposes because one of the things that uh, the FOP does, well, the FOP talks about science. Um, I include some examples in this and in the other chapters too. You know, when they talk about certain characters, young Ottomans or many other Ottoman authors will talk about a person yeah, who looks like a European and who tries to talk about science and just doesn't make any sense. So here in this context, it becomes clear that um, the debate is not necessarily as much about what science is, but who should be the representative of science? What kind of a person will be a credible uh, representative of science? And for these uh, young authors, well, it's not the fop. It should be a different kind of person. Well, maybe we can talk about who that person is in a little bit. We will definitely talk about who yeah. that person is. But in the meantime, I just also like saying the word fop. So as we move from here to, to, to move toward, to kind of inch toward um, that new person who is not a fop, 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 we move, we move into chapter five. And chapter five takes us into kind of the key themes and, dis and alternative discourses of the 1870s debate. Now, here again, in this context um, of debating science in the late Tanzimat era, the debate over science was all about out, as we've you know seen um, evidence of in different contexts before, establishing the qualities of an Ottoman subject and of a Muslim Ottoman man of science in particular. So you mentioned here, and, and I'll ask you to talk a little bit about this, that what made this debate different from that of the Tanzimat bureaucrats was a renewed emphasis on the importance of community. So community mm -hmm. becomes a really key theme and a key term um, to, uh, for us to understand what's going on here. So could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think one thing that I haven't talked about much uh, is this question of you know, intercommunal uh, relations. Uh, this is something that definitely requires a lot more research. I mean, lots of Ottoman or historians of the 19th century Ottoman Empire have written on it, but there's still, I think, you know, work to be done. Um, 
the effects of you know, capitalism um, on Ottoman social structure. Of course, you know, you don't want to exaggerate the impacts, but still it is um, probably safe to say that, you know, um, Muslim uh, or members of the Muslim community did not benefit as much from the integration of the Ottoman economy into the world capitalist order as much as some members of the non-Muslim communities. Again, not all members, but some members. Um, so in the new economic order, it appears to many uh, members of the Muslim community that some non-Muslims are uh, benefiting a lot more. Of course, there's the effect of the uh, protection offered by the great powers um, for the non-Muslim communities as well, yeah. entirely for political reasons. But no matter what the reason is, the perception among Muslim uh, or members of the Muslim middle class especially is that non-Muslims are benefiting from this a lot more than Muslims. Similarly, there is this uh, emphasis on non-Muslim schools. They are better. Uh, they learn a lot more than the average you know, Muslim kid in school. So this becomes a period of kind of heightened, heightened anxiety for uh, members of the Muslim middle class, especially. Uh, that also you know, fits into the young Ottoman discourse in general. So there is this emphasis on community primarily, I think, you know, for this reason. It becomes, or the intercommunal relations become um, an issue that is seen primarily in terms of a competition at this point. Um, and the hierarchies are changing in general because of the legal changes. Now Muslim and non-Muslim Ottomans are equal as citizens, at least on paper. Um, so all of these legal and economic changes are creating a new kind of anxiety for Muslims. As a result, when there's a discussion on science, once again, it is the same topic. How is it going to influence the Muslims or the Muslim community? Um, so for that reason, I think there's also that additional you know, emphasis on the FOP. So because this person doesn't seem like a member of the Muslim community or a person who would defend the rights of the Muslim community. Great. So... so to put it another way then, and, and as you kind of um, emphasize here in the chapter, for these debaters, being conversant with, with European science like wasn't enough to make one a respectable man, a virtuous man. For that, they needed to prove their loyalty to the community, right? Now, but because, and, and this is a really, really interesting thing I think that's happening here, because there's so much emphasis on community, as you've just described really eloquently and really, really helpfully, um, this emphasis on the notion of community also involves a renewed need to define that community and to define mm -hmm. what that community is. And this becomes really interesting in the context of conversations about science and also about language, right, and science. So can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Again, like I said, you know, there had already emerged this uh, association between, you know, Turkish and new knowledge and Arabic and old knowledge. But in this period, it becomes even more uh, commonly discussed. Of course, there are all these debates that historians of the Ottoman Empire uh, are familiar with about the Ottoman alphabet. Can the Arabic alphabet be used if uh, the rates of literacy are to go up? Uh, there are many uh, debates about, you know, if there should be changes in the language, at least, you know, uh, should a more plain Turkish be used? And uh, we see, I think, you know, these kinds of debates a lot when um, we read texts about the old you know, Islamic you know, schools, the madrasas. Um, there are very interesting discussions about you know, what the madrasa is actually teaching or how useful it actually is. So if you are learning, if you go to the madrasa and if you learn, uh, you know, say, the rules of you know, Arabic grammar, or if you are uh, learning about, um, again, the 
Quran or Islam primarily in Arabic or from Arabic texts, can you actually be a useful citizen? Um, there are those discussions about, you know, why are, you know, the new men of science more productive, at least, you know, in terms of public publishing books than the products of the madrasa system? Well, one of the arguments people make is that, well, the new schools are teaching in Turkish and these people, uh, the new, the representatives of the new knowledges can publish books in Turkish, whereas the products of the madrasa are not necessarily as good um, when it comes to using Turkish. And as a result, you know, they are not necessarily as you know, useful to society as the um, men of science. Um, and I think you know, it, beca- it will become a very you know, um, salient issue, and it still is, to talk about you know, how um, Arabic or the teaching of Arabic impacted the culture of the Ottoman Empire, and and, and of course now what its legacy is, you know, for the Turkish uh, Republic today. These become very important issues, and many people will uh, argue that it was the use of Arabic that prevented the Ottoman Empire from making science um, more um, or, or using scientific or producing more scientific knowledge. Mm-hmm. Thank you. You know, we need a conference that's just like all about language and science. I know, you know? yes. And we need to give like a keynote at that conference and we need to have, you know, I want to get like you and Marwa and Michael Gordon and people yeah. together and just use this to inform the contemporary um, debates over you know, even like funding of research and like the constant discourse now about, you know, translating for a public audience and what that assumes about vernacularization and a public. Anyway, there's there's uh, so much, I think, to be done here. And so if anywhere in your mind you were ever thinking before, you know what I really want to do? I want to have a conference on language and science. Like I encourage you to to do well, that yeah. and to totally um, invite me to be a fly on the wall and I will just listen the hell out of that conference. Oh, I thought you were going to organize it and invite okay, me. Okay, we'll talk. All right, <laughs> we can talk. Let's talk. Well, we'll All right, after. okay. <laughs> Okay, so as we move from here into the um, the last two body chapters and the conclusion, we move to chapter six, which is really, um, in many ways, one of my absolute favorite chapters um, for reasons that we'll get into in a moment. <laughs> so chapter six and seven are both focused on analyzing debates during the reign of Abdul Hamid II, um, who reigned from 1876 to 1909. Um, and this is a really, really interesting part of the book. So chapter six uh, argues that a new official discourse on science emerged in this period. Now, this new discourse synthesized the official and the alternative threads that we explored in previous chapters. And there were some new elements of this, though. So here, science becomes the officially endorsed knowledge, but a man of science also needs to demonstrate that he is a loyal Muslim subject um, in really, really interesting ways. So you characterize three enduring legacies of the 1860s and 1870s debates um, that really kind of dominated what's happening. The first is something that we've actually... um, talked a little bit about already, this is the importance of science um, in terms of the identity of the community. And you mentioned that there's an increasing emphasis in this period on the Islamic identity of the empire. Um, So maybe let's pause and just talk a little bit about that. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what's important and what's new and what's different about this emphasis on Islamic identity specifically um, in terms of how community is understood here? 
Well, this period is known as the period of pan-Islamism. Of course, this is a very controversial subject. Many historians today will argue that, you know, it was primarily, again, a strategy that the palace used to, well, to keep what remained of the empire together. So we are looking at a period in which most of the territories in Europe are lost uh, for the Ottoman Empire. Now the population of the empire is very predominantly Muslim, unlike the previous periods. So it appears that, you know, the most important task at this point is to prevent further disintegration by keeping the remaining Muslim communities together. So, of course, this means um, primarily, you know, Arabs, um, Kurds and Turks, Um, even though there are still, you know, significant non-Muslim minorities, the amounts, the numbers uh, are not comparable to pre-18 76 numbers. So uh, Islam becomes a very important kind of perhaps ideology. And also uh, another reason why Islam becomes important is, of course, to perhaps hopefully uh, gain the support of Muslims outside of the empire who are under you know, colonial rule, perhaps you know, to be able to create these or forge these alliances, maybe support them uh, or maybe expect their support uh, during the Ottoman um, kind of struggle against the uh, great powers. So if, say, uh, Indians revolt against the British, or if there's a general sense in the um, in, in Europe that the Ottoman Empire is really the um, sole authority of the Muslims around the world, it was assumed or it was believed that, you know, the Ottoman Empire would be able to um, deal with the hardships that was going through a little bit more easily. So Islam becomes a very, very like uh, kind of important part of uh, the official ideology, and it becomes very important also to show that Islam is the religion that will keep the society intact to these young students who are learning the new sciences. Um, so there are m- many more classes on Islam in these schools, um, many more courses on Islamic morality or the history of Islam in these schools. So it becomes Islam becomes, um, in a way, sociologists would call like objectified. Islam is something that is defined and defined over and over again, and kind of constructed as something that uh, keeps the community together. Great. So if this is um, one, of the, one of the three major themes that you identify, the other two major themes are interesting and actually interestingly related. So let's talk about those. One of them is science as useful knowledge. And this actually becomes, um, this comes up interestingly in the third feature as well, which is the disciplining, right? The disciplining mm-hmm. of the young science enthusiast by invoking cautionary figures. Okay, so mm-hmm. we have these three science and the identity of the community with a renewed emphasis on Islamic identity. We have science as useful knowledge, and we have um, a disciplining, right, of young science enthusiasts by invoking Mm -hmm. cautionary figures. Now, the last two are interestingly related because one of the cautionary figures that's invoked is the figure of the confused materialist. And this lets me say fop again. So fop. So this is a a new figure that, um, in addition to the figure of the fop, is invoked as a cautionary tale. So can you talk about Mm -hmm. the confused materialist? Um, Who is the confused materialist and what do we need to understand about that to understand the, the heft and the weight of this figure in terms of what's going on here? Yeah, I think, you know, in the text of the 1880s and the 1890s, we suddenly start to see many more references to the materialist. Um, maybe more commonly than the FOP. 
What's the difference? Well, the FOP uh, talked about science but didn't really know anything about it. Um, the FOP was simply interested in the appearance. Well, the materialist is a person who has studied the sciences, who knows the sciences, but who doesn't know much about Islam and the traditions or the beliefs of the community, as a result of which he, he has lost his sense of you know, uh, connection or allegiance to the community. Uh, this is a person who is not necessarily ridiculed as perhaps you know, stupid or um, um, like he's not a, just a parrot. This is a person who understands the sciences, but he lacks the perhaps the spiritual element or the element that would com- connect him to the community. And this becomes an important issue, of course, because um, it has to do with basically the future of the empire, right? These are people, you know, who kind of lost their, their allegiance to the community at a time in which this community is under very significant threat. And the um, Ottoman palace is trying to invent or construct this ideology that will bring the people together primarily around the, their faith in Islam. Well, these materialists have, it is again, you know, argued, lost their faith in Islam. As a result, they are kind of like a very important internal threat to the empire. Mm-hmm. Great. Now, this comes up really, really fascinatingly, um, at least for me, um, in a context of a conversation in this chapter between scientists and poets, or rather, perhaps put more specifically, like the ways that science enthusiasts are starting to critique poets and critique poetry. And there's lots of different ways this is happening. There are conversations about how to make poetry useful. Um, there are debates around um, moral virtue, like are scientists or poets more virtuous or useful? There's all kinds of stuff happening here around poetry. So I would just love to open this up for you to talk about what you think is most interesting about what's happening here in terms of poetry and poets. And yeah, just uh, what do you think is happening? That's great. Yeah, I think, you know, that's a really interesting um, thing about poetry. It, it is possible or it turns out to be possible to attack poetry in, from so many different directions. And in this, of course, you know, when we say poetry and science, of course, we're primarily talking about poets and men of science, you know, the people themselves. So there is this um, debate on what kinds of people are poets and what are the effects of the things that they produce. So it's not simply these so-called confused materialists. Um, some members of the Young Ottoman Movement themselves, or many other people wrote about uh, the problems with classical Ottoman poetry because of its uh, attention to perhaps worldly pleasures, uh, because it was difficult for, again, the common person perhaps to understand what the poet was saying. But in the 1880s, we see this additional uh, kind of um, wave of uh, criticism towards poetry or poets, again, with emphasis on issues like, you know, does poetry make uh, a society um, more intellectually advanced or does it not? Or does poetry make a person lazy? Or, Or the imagery, the metaphors poets use, what would the effects of those be on a person's, you know, morality. So these are issues debated by many different groups. But of course, you know, it becomes an issue um, on which these science enthusiasts write a lot too. And one of them um, that I devote many pages to in the book by the name of Bashir Fuad, you know, writes a lot about how poetry is 
primarily an inferior kind of, you know, uh, cultural product. Poets, again, you know, he argues, are simply dreamers. They don't really contribute anything to society. They are, again, mostly like, you know, intoxicated people whose words aren't supposed to be taken seriously. And he argues, you know, it's not that difficult to write a poem, whereas <laughs> he actually uh, tries to prove that by writing a poem himself. Um, <laughs> um, and then, you know, his critics, even though, you know, there is this general sense that, you know, like poetry might not necessarily, or maybe like that, that poetry does need reform, maybe there is consensus on that. But when a person like Bishop Fouad starts to criticize poets and poetry so radically, he starts to attract um, a lot of criticism himself. So his critics start to argue that, you know, this, um, these arguments against poetry actually are now primarily turning into a criticism of the Ottoman legacy itself again. Uh, and the idea is that perhaps this way of criticizing poetry or poems or poets is actually not going to necessarily contribute much to the uh, enhancements of morals in society. Um, so Bishop Fuad is increasingly uh, described as a person who, again, lost his faith in Islam or the traditions of his society, and using poetry simply as a way to attack everything else. Um, so his critics tell him that he has been influenced too much by people like Voltaire. That, of course, in Ottoman, you know, speak means you're an atheist. Um, Bishop Fouad is criticized as this person who has, who kind of like symbolizes everything that is wrong with the new educated uh, young man. So, I mean, the story ends with uh, Bishop Fouad's, you know, suicide. But I think, you know, more important than the suicide itself is like, how, how the suicide has been represented. You know, after Fouad is Dead. The way people talked about the suicide, I think, again, you know, had a very long-lasting impact on how um, these people, these young people of the 1880s, and in fact, you know, many Turkish um, and Ottoman uh, young men of science were represented. So in those writings, right after his suicide, we see many, many articles that argue that Mithat's suicide proved, in a way, that he had no moral values. Or uh, Fuad was a person who had been so alienated because he had learned only about the sciences but not about the history of Islam or Islamic uh, beliefs or traditions. All of those combined to kind of make him a person who could not um, kind of contribute to society and as a result he killed himself. These arguments I think have become pretty powerful. And now there was this actual example of what happens to you if you uh, are a confused materialist. So I think, you know, one of the, again, most important contributions to the discourse and the debate on science and morality at the time has to do primarily with, you know, Bishop Ford and what happened to him. So this great example of a materialist, a person who is too infatuated by science and a person who doesn't really know much about Islam, and as a result, a person who can't really um, contribute anything to society. And there's this really powerful moment um, in that chapter, too, just um, where his... Uh, 
you describe uh, at least one understanding of what's happened in the course of his suicide, where he's actually like he slits his wrists and then he's taking notes on what happens to leave a record so that other people can actually learn from it. It's this just incredibly powerful and really, really jarring, um, but jarring in a productive way um, seen in the book. So I would just really, um, again, highlight for listeners, um, pay attention to this figure and to what happens because it's a really, really powerful story. Yes, and also yeah, a story that can be used for many different purposes and has been used. That's right. So as we move to the final chapters of the book, Opera, we move um, to a chapter, chapter seven, that looks at, as you put it here, the arguments of these confused materialists and really pays special attention to a range of really interesting kinds of sources. So textbooks and newspapers and articles and literary works and children's literature. Now, these men are criticized as atheists, um, again, as you've kind of described and we've talked about already, as naive europhiles, as enemies of tradition. Um, but you talk about in their texts the ways that they're repeatedly actually referencing Islam and morality. So there's this really interesting um, stuff playing out here. Now, you also talk about the importance here of the figure of the sultan. So let's talk a little bit about that just to kind of get at some of what's happening here. In the 1880s and 1890s, references to moral virtue, and, and again, like conversations about science and knowledge and novelty are bound up in these conversations about moral virtue. So these references to moral virtue are increasingly invoking Islam and also the authority of the sultan. So can you maybe just say a little bit to kind of bring us to the end here about um, what's happening in this context and in this chapter, that's most important for us to understand sort of how this argument plays out. What's um, striking, new, important, um, meaningful about the way that Islam and the authority of the Sultan are coming into conversations about morality here? Um, yeah, I think you know, this is something that I discuss in this chapter and I think in the previous one too. Um, that This is something that could be, again, elaborated on, but I argue that there is something like an authority triangle um, in this period that is being constructed. First, one corner, of course, is the sultan. The sultan is the protector of religion, and uh, the sultan is the person whose authority is, of course, you know, uh, based on religion. Then another corner, of course, is religion. Well, the sultan protects religion, um, and, of course, religion is what keeps the people together. But the third corner now is science. So science has definitely entered into this triangle because um, no matter what people write about, say, men of science, there does appear to be this kind of like hegemonic um, idea that you know, science is required, science is needed. But how is this uh, playing a part in the triangle? Well, again, science is in harmony with religion. Science supports the state, the state supports science, and then religion, you know, Islam actually endorses science. So all of these combined um, give you the kind of the, perhaps the, the trinity, the holy trinity that the um, new ideal Ottoman citizen is to respect and perhaps obey. Um, but of course, under condition that, you know, they see these links. So you can't necessarily be a person who, um, loves science but doesn't believe that Islam supports it. Mm -hmm. Or you can't be a person who um, supports, say, the Sultan, but also ignore that, you know, the Sultan also endorses the sciences. So there's this really interesting set of beliefs that emerge. Now, of course, you know, when it comes to morality, again, the important effort that we see here is to 
uh, or, or has to do with, you know, combining Islam and morality or making Islam the sole source of moral values. So we see more morality courses uh, in the new schools uh, being taught. Lots of textbooks on morality appear in this period. And interestingly, as I tried to show in the book, you know, many of them do talk about science, these morality textbooks. Morality textbooks. Um, so again, perhaps, you know, in that authority triangle, you could say that you know, Islam and science uh, both contribute to the uh, kind of like strengthening of moral values, but again, under on condition that, you know, you see the links between uh, Islam and science in a particular way. So there is a lot of um, writing that we see in the late 19th, end of the 19th century, basically, that argues that the man of science could be a very moral person if he understood the connection between science and Islam. How does that happen? Well, the man of science can actually understand the Quran better, uh, can understand the instructions of God better, as a result, becomes more virtuous. Similarly, there are some people or some textbooks that argue that um, following the root of science will prevent you from kind of worldly or seeking worldly pleasures. So there is this emphasis on perhaps science as uh, like a sober activity. Uh, again, in that sense, also very much in tandem with, you know, with religion. Um, and we see that, you know, in the novels, like you mentioned, this character appears pretty frequently. This person has become moral, has become a true believer in Islam, precisely because, you know, he studied science. So science, studying the sciences, enabled this person to understand the universe better, understand uh, how things work, then, as a result, appreciate the religion uh, that endorses science so much, which is, of course, Islam. And as a result of all of these things, this person has also become a very obedient kind of reliable a member of the Ottoman Muslim community who will not, you know, revolt against the Sultan. So this very interesting, like, again, this set of uh, ideas about authority, you know, related to the Sultan, related to religion, related to science, come together and create this, like, very kind of uh, pedantic, uh, idealized idea of uh, true, you know, perfect man of science. And this is, I guess, what I tried to show in the uh, last chapter. Great. So, Albert, thank you so much. We're now at the end of our time, um, and we're functionally at the end of the book. There's also a conclusion um, that really, I think, nicely wraps this up and brings us back to the original question that the book started with. What were the Ottomans talking about when they talked about science? And I think um, it's hopefully clear to listeners, as it's absolutely clear to readers by the end of this, they were talking about people. And that's clear every step along the way. Now, there's a lot we didn't have a chance to talk about, of course, um, and, you know, including contemporary um, sort of relevance of the story that you're telling here, but also lots of kinds of other things. Is there anything in particular that didn't come up but that you'd like to mention for listeners? Sure. Well, I think there's one simple thing that I should mention. Um, I mean, this story, this project, in a way, started also as a project on this very dominant discourse that we still hear a lot in contemporary Turkey, and not just Turkey, in many other, uh, I think, you know, countries of the world, in which, you know, the task of the ideal citizen is perhaps to learn the sciences from Europe, but 
keep intact their moral values. You know, let's borrow their sciences, let's let's take their technologies, but not their morality. This is a discourse that is still very, very, very dominant you know, in many parts of the world, again, including Turkey. So I think this book could be read as a kind of a, as a history of that discourse. To people who are familiar with that discourse, this will um, I think be pretty interesting to read to see how. Kind of like um, how deep the roots go, um, and I think a second thing that perhaps I could mention again, this is something that I say in the conclusion. Very simple. I mean, the book shows that when people talked about science, they were talking about people. So maybe again, you know, today too, we could take into account a little bit more frequently that you know when people talk about science, they are still talking about people. Great. So now that the book is out, what's next for you? What are you working on now, and what are you feeling particularly inspired by? Um, I think, so I was telling myself that I was going to make a huge jump and enter the 20th century after this book. Uh, I think, you know, one last thing that I want to do before making that move is to focus a little bit more on the, you know, um, harmony between Islam and science, you know, argument, uh, especially in terms of um, the idea that Islamic rituals and the arguments in the Quran are all, you know, confirmed or are supported by scientific evidence. Um, I think this is an area that that has been, you know, studied before, but I think there isn't enough research on how there's this literature on how Islamic rituals are kind of good for your health. Uh, I think that's something that I'm going to be working on a little bit. But then the bigger project that I want to... Um, embark on is uh, really about the 20th century Turkish case, uh, especially the mid-20th century uh, Turkish policies on science and the accompanying discourse. And as part of it, I also want to look at the conservative response. It's very dominant in these kinds of research to see uh, that people kept making the argument that Islam and science were in harmony. But then somehow it appears that in the 1980s, uh, people in Turkey started to hate the theory of evolution. It seems like you no, know, there was nothing in that period, and then suddenly in the 80s, people start challenging, especially like the theory of evolution, but science a little bit uh, in general as well. Well, I want to understand, you know, what was happening in the period, say, between the 40s and the 70s. Was there already a reaction to science or alternative ideas about science? Um, uh, were they being, you know, constructed in more conservative uh, texts? That, that is another thing that I want to look at. And finally, I want to look at, I will start a project on the contemporary disputes on evolution in Turkey, but I will focus more on the people who defend evolution. What are the strategies that they use to make evolution um, appear as a theory that all Turks should um, kind of have faith in? What do people think the theory of evolution is about? So that's another thing that I will be looking at. Great. Well, best of luck um, with those projects, Alper. And thank you so much for this project, for this book, and also for making mm-hmm. time to talk with me about it. It's really been a pleasure. And just congratulations. Thank you very much, Carla. I really enjoyed it. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very much for joining us, and we will see you next time.